how do we advance human rights in a manner that doesn't just privilege those with the most power, the most voice, the most resources, and the most access, but really be more inclusive and embody the values that we want to advance. For the last few weeks, the bombardment of the Syrian city of Aleppo has filled headlines across the globe. Aleppo's long been the beating heart of the rebellion against Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, so it comes as little surprise that his military's efforts to drive rebels out of the city would come at a high cost. Unfortunately, much of that cost has been borne by civilians, far too many of them children. The Syrian civil war has brought renewed attention to the essential work done by human rights organizations like UNICEF and Doctors Without Borders. But human rights work is limited neither to international organizations nor major crises like that in Syria. It's a constant struggle across the globe involving a myriad of people and organizations trying to preserve human dignity. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and to give us a peek into some of those challenges and some of those organizations, we've, we're joined by Sushma Rahman, Executive Director of the Kennedy School's Carr Center for Human Rights and also an adjunct lecturer and alumnus of the school. Sushma, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So with Aleppo in the news recently, there has been a renewed attention on human rights in general. Given what's happening in Syria, is it a good thing that uh, people are paying more attention to human rights right now? Or is does it detract from the overall goal that uh, it's only it only gets that attention when there's such a enormous crisis? Thank you, Matt, for hosting me today. I do think that human rights are always important. They may not always be in the news, or they may be particular issues that are in the news. The situation in Syria, of course, is in the news uh, very much nowadays. But over the years and over the decades, we've seen different issues, different regions, Darfur, DRC, Myanmar, um, issues around child labor and trafficking, slavery, uh, women's rights. So we, we've seen a panoply of rights issues in a, a variety of regions being the object of our focus um, over the decades. What that does do also is um, cause many of us to feel a sense of perhaps fatigue or an overwhelming feeling. What on earth can each of us do to address these very large-scale problems? And how does this really directly touch my life? And the reality is that human rights is something that affects all of us in the smallest to the most grandest of ways. So it affects us in our family situations when we think about domestic violence. It affects women across the world, irrespective of um, race, socioeconomic status, um, geographic region, and so on. It affects the status of children who are also suffering from child abuse and exploitation. It affects us in the workplace when you think about uh, gender-based discrimination or um, discrimination towards uh, other protected classes such as LGBT groups. And it affects us in broader society when we think about um, the, the recent challenges we've faced in the United States with respect to uh, policing and police abuse and uh, the status of African-American communities in particular. So uh, we see um, human rights as really relevant to the status, lives, livelihoods, and dignity of individuals, families, communities, and societies from you know, the smallest issue to the largest of uh, humanitarian crises that, like the kind we're seeing in Syria today. Mm -hmm. 
given the large variety of issues that are, uh, you know, collected within the category of human rights, how do organizations attack the, the these varied problems? Um, do you find that organizations uh, with human rights at the at as their header? Um, have difficulty diving in deep on, you know, specific issues? That's a great question. Um, I think it really depends on the mission of the organization, the values of the founder. Is this something that's a non-governmental or non-profit effort, or is this a an official government or UN-type response? So a lot depends on the mission, the values, the founders, the, the impetus, even the funding. So what you see, at least in the United States, are organizations that are very large, very broad in mandate, like Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International USA, that really cover a range of human rights issues and that work globally. But then you have organizations that work on specific issues like genocide or in specific countries like the Congo. And globally, you see organizations that often rally about around specific causes. So you have a very, very robust uh, women's rights movement in the global south. You have organizations working on environmental justice, the right to water, other types of issues. Uh, And very often these institutions and movements arise out of particular contexts where they're grappling with particular challenges that they're facing in that particular country or uh, battling the state to secure a set of rights or even corporations that are abusing their rights. Mm I, I'm, I'm curious about uh, some of the challenges that those those institutions or those organizations. What what are the main challenges mm. that they end up facing? Um, so I, I'll highlight a couple of challenges. The first globally is the challenge of shrinking civil society space that we see around the world. And um, that's just a fancy way of saying that in many country contexts, governments are not comfortable with having human rights organizations that are tracking what they're doing, the impact of government policies and programs on the poor or particular groups like indigenous groups. And they often uh, react, governments react with legislation, with uh, restrictions, with even closing down uh, organizations or filing false charges against them. So uh, this challenge around the shrinking space for civil society affects organizations' capacity to function and affects their ability to uh, really think strategically, proactively, and long-term because they're so busy just reacting to the current day crisis. I I imagine that's a problem that these kinds of organizations have long faced uh, in the face of uh, non-democratic institutions, or uh, governments rather. Are we getting better, largely? (laughs) Are are there more governments that are open to having these organizations active? Or is it just the fact that governments that do not necessarily want these organizations happen to be the ones that uh, are governing countries where human rights violations are happening? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, we can't universalize this, of course, and Mm -hmm. say something that holds true for every single country. Uh, It's ironic, actually, because many of these movements and institutions emerged out of uh, movements for democracy, for freedom, struggles against colonialism, or or in their aftermath. Mm -hmm. And um, what we see now is um, maybe in the past it was repression by colonial masters, but now it's repression by governments uh, in those particular countries. In other cases, 
cases, it's not repression by governments. It's corporations that are the target of uh, social movements and human rights organizations. And um, and and then there's reaction um, by corporations against these efforts. Although there's increasingly a movement for uh, business to work with human rights principles, environmental principles, integrated within their own kind of values and approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you asked earlier about the challenges facing these institutions. Related to the shrinking civil society space, I'll say the challenge of raising funds. Because in many uh, emerging democracies and in countries that are really growing, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, other countries around the world, you see an emerging middle class. But very often, philanthropy is directed to charitable causes or, in some cases, religious causes. And these are all very worthwhile. But those institutions don't necessarily challenge the status quo or seek government transparency and accountability. And um, and you see Western funds coming to human rights causes in different countries. So the challenge really is to think about how to raise funds both domestically and globally so that these human rights groups are not accused of just being a, you know, a puppet of Western powers. I imagine that. Is that a significant problem with the money coming in from the Western world? It, it can, because the reality is also that donors dictate uh, a certain agendas based on their uh, priorities, particularly if it's government funding. Mm-hmm. And in other cases, even if it's private philanthropic funding, it's based on the interests of the foundation uh, mm-hmm. in question. So I, I think that that um, you know, this resource uh, issue has to be tackled within countries by greater education of philanthropists and also of uh, creating a better enabling environment for philanthropy and for all NGOs, but mm-hmm. in particular human rights NGOs. I'll also touch on the issue of the power imbalance within the human rights uh, community globally, because you have very large organizations that have a global footprint with offices around the world, with professional staff, uh, with a great amount of technological uh, and um, political resources. Mm-hmm. And then you have movements that are based in a particular context, whether it's a particular country or working on a particular issue, and whose leadership is directly representative of the co- uh, communities who are most marginalized and most affected by human rights violations. And very often there's a resource imbalance between um, these different types of groups. Mm So I think all of us working on human rights have to be mindful of this and think about um, how do we advance human rights in a manner that doesn't just privilege those with the most power, the most voice, the most resources, and the most access, but really be more inclusive and embody the values that we want to advance. Uh, I have to admit to uh, a bit of my own myopia here. Uh, when you were describing uh, the, some of the challenges faced with, uh, say, raising funds um, or with uh, governments that are clamping down on human rights, my mind immediately went to the uh, you know places that have been mired in civil war, a place like uh, Darfur or Syria, but it occurred to me that I'm guessing um, that these these issues are not limited to just those in economically depressed areas, but areas really across the entire spectrum, both uh, economically, uh, socially, culturally, etc. Um, are the are there issues that go across the lines from, you know, from the the poorest countries to, uh, you know, the the, the richest, most Mm -hmm. socially uh, progressive, however however you want to uh, categorize them? That's right. 
So um, what's interesting, if we look at the United States, uh, there may be a fairly free uh, environment for philanthropic giving and for the nonprofit sector to flourish. But there have been, from time to time, uh, grumblings in past decades around uh, groups that do advocacy and whether they should get funding and so on. It really depends. But even if you look at philanthropic giving in the United States, you have you know uh, tens of thousands of foundations of you know varying sizes, and um, are there sufficient resources going for uh, particularly uh, what we would say human rights causes in the United States? Let's think about um, Black Lives Matter the struggle for indigenous rights here, criminal justice reform, um, education reform that really addresses the needs of low-income children around the country. Is there sufficient money going for these causes? And I would argue no. So even though there isn't a government crackdown per se, um, there is an approach to philanthropic giving that does not necessarily prioritize human rights per se or the range of rights like women's rights and, and so on that, that uh, we should be focusing on uh, rather than purely giving funds for other causes that are worthy but perhaps may not merit um, our attention. Uh, in 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was signed, and uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure human rights uh, movements existed beforehand, but that really was the start of the modern concept of human rights. Um, as a global endeavor, I wonder if it set human rights as a global concept rather than a local concept, and has that affected the way human rights are thought of and, um, uh, you know, tackled? So I think they're both. I, I think you cannot secure them globally if you're not securing them locally. You need to, you need to do both. And uh, I'll go back to what I said before, that this is really something that we, uh, it's, a, it's an endeavor that's in progress, that even countries that we may think of that are uh, economically advanced or, um, you know, have, have secured certain rights for, for people there are not necessarily there yet. So, for example, I'm just looking down at my printout of the Universal Declaration of Human <laughs> Rights, and it says, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment or punishment yet. The U.S. Um, exercised torture over uh, inmates in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And, um, you know, uh, we say that no one should be held in slavery or servitude. And many may be surprised that slavery and trafficking is something that occurs not only uh, around the world, but also people are trafficked into the United States, um, uh, people who are working in sub uh, human conditions as migrant workers, the sex trafficking industry um, really affects people who are brought into the United States. So I would say that it's both local and it's global. And many of the concerns that we are grappling with today, human rights concerns, are really transcending the boundaries of the nation state. So whether we mm -hmm. talk about migration, the effects of climate change, uh, large-scale humanitarian crises that cross borders, and of course, issues of slavery and trafficking. Mm -hmm. These are issues that are uh, global in nature, but they require the participation of local, national states, as well as corporations and communities. Do you find that um, organizations that are trying to make change on an international level, do they prove themselves capable of making change on a local level? I think international organizations play a, a different role than local organizations, and they can complement local organizations. 
I think it's also important to recognize those power imbalances that I addressed earlier and to ensure that, you know, local voices are also consulted when policies and and programs are being developed. And this is particularly true also in the foundation world where global foundations can develop these large complex human rights or other kinds of social change initiatives. And mm-hmm. and we have to always come back to who are the people most di- directly affected by these policies, programs, initiatives? Um, what are their points of view? What has been tried before and doesn't work? And how can we learn from past mistakes that we've made and others have made? And how do we integrate these voices at the table to ensure that any kind of change that occurs is enduring? Mm -hmm. So back to the question you brought, well, you mentioned before uh, the question that people have when they see things in the news, the response, the idea, well, can I do something about it? Is there some way that I can make change. It's something I grapple with, even as someone who works on these issues, you know, for my entire career. So I think the first step is to get informed, to read a wide variety of uh, news sources, to stay abreast of what's happening. It can be overwhelming, particularly when there are multiple challenges facing the world today. So we get information at a much faster speed than we ever did before. Uh, But the challenges with globalization, technology, and communications advances is that we are faced with sort of an information overload. And so it's very hard to sift through and digest and figure out how to prioritize. So I'd say starting with just informing oneself while realizing that there is so much information out there. Um, The second is thinking about the ways in which one can get involved. It could be everything from writing a check to an organization that you trust. And there's many wonderful organizations doing great work around the world who need support. So thinking about a way to support an organization that's doing um, terrific work. Um, Another could be getting involved through volunteering. Many groups do accept both skilled volunteers as well as unskilled volunteers who can help. Increasingly, we see digital campaigns where um, people are mobilizing online because it's not just about providing a direct service to another person. That's very uh, rewarding in many ways, but a change in, uh, is required at the, at the policy level as well. So there could be campaigns you're part of that are focused on a particular policy action or change. And I'd say, again, sift through the information, figure out who's putting these things together. Is it credible? Uh, does it have legs? Does it resonate with you? Get involved in such campaigns and efforts. Um, Uh, So there's different ways in which one could get involved. I'd say on the political lens as well, depending on where one lives and and how one is engaged, but thinking about um, ways in which one could advocate, for example, in the United States on refugee policy and and advocating for something that is consistent with American values and ideals as opposed to coming from a position of fear and uh, positioning immigrants as the other. You know, we've talked about the Syrian migrant crisis, but there's another big crisis that's facing the United States. It's the challenges facing uh, Central American women and children who are crossing the border, fleeing uh, violence, uh, inordinate human rights violations, uh, economic deprivation. And very often these women and children and unaccompanied minors are thrown into detention facilities, uh, uh, you know, awaiting hearing. And the conditions there are really quite horrific. And, you know, we have to think about what is the message that we send, um, 
you know, with respect to the treatment of refugees and migrants uh, across the board. So there's different ways in which you can get involved locally and nationally in terms of responding on policy issues. Um, and I think another big issue is aid. Uh, you know, the United States provides a lot of aid, particularly post-disasters uh, and humanitarian crises to other countries. And and this is also an area where I think we can all get better informed. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. spent billions of dollars in Haiti after the earthquake, but it really was not directed towards Haitian-led organizations. Most of it went to consulting groups and uh, U.S. organizations that then went into Haiti with very limited uh, outcomes. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a variety in ways of ways in which we can all get informed, get engaged, and, and, and support various causes. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Sushma, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I'd welcome all of you to visit the Carr Center for Human Rights Policies website. Check out our events if you're in the local Boston, Cambridge area. Sign up for our newsletter and get informed and involved. You can find links to all that in the show notes at hkspolicycast.org. HKS Policycast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader. Natalie Montana is our guest wrangler. Sarah Abrams, our sage advisor. And Becky Wickle, our digital attache. Send us your comments and questions to policycast at hks.harvard.edu or on Twitter at Policycast. And subscribe on iTunes and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.